Hey team, this is Roman Mars. Here's a quick update. As I record, we are about 4,000 contributors away from getting the 15,000 total that we need for the final Slack challenge for that extra $50,000 for Radiotopia. Since there are hundreds of thousands of you listening, I know that we can do it. But I'm not talking to the hundreds of thousands. I'm talking just to you. I think you can probably manage a contribution of $1 a month for Radiotopia. If you can't, that is totally cool. I have been there, and you will always get this show for free. But if you can, $1 a month is like paying three cents an episode. That's three pennies. That's what you'd leave in that little dish by the cash register at the bodega because you can't be bothered to carry it around. And with that $1 a month, we can continue to recreate audio storytelling for this new, independent, creator-driven, golden age of radio. And if you can manage a bit more a month at $4 a month, I'll send you the coveted 99PI Challenge coin. Trust me when I tell you, you will regret missing this opportunity to get one. They're glorious. I think with a little help from me, 2015 was the year of the flag. But you heard it here first, 2016 will be the year of the challenge coin. Ask yourself, will you be ready when I say to you, coin check. Go to radiotopia.fm to contribute. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. To begin, there's someone our producer, Sam Greenspan, would like you to meet. Can you say who you are and how you know me? I'm your grandmother. My name is Jean Greenspan, and I'm Sam Greenspan's grandmother. Jean Greenspan is my father's mother. I call her Grandma Jeannie. She grew up during the Great Depression, and because her family got a lot of help from FDR and the New Deal, Grandma Jeannie is a Democrat. Always has been, always will be. Grandma, have you ever voted for a Republican or anyone who wasn't a Democrat? No, 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 not at all. No, never, never, never do that. Always vote for a Democrat. And so on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November in the year 2000, Grandma Jeannie hopped on her three-wheel bike and pedaled over to the community center in her retirement village. And she did what she always does. She voted a straight Democratic ticket. Or at least she thought she did. Grandma, can you tell me where you live? Oh, and now I live in Century Village, West Palm Beach, in Florida. And uh, in what county do you live in? What county? Palm Beach County. An election in turmoil. A presidency in the balance. Who will emerge the winner in the historic Florida recount? I believe the people of Palm Beach County have entrusted us to voice their right to participate in their government. I move that this board conduct a manual recount of all the ballots for the presidential election for the year 2000. The election was close, but tonight after a count and yet another manual recount, Secretary Cheney and I are honored and humbled to have won the state of Florida which gives us the needed electoral votes to win the election. As a quick refresher, the 2000 presidential race between Republican George W. Bush and Democrat Al Gore came down to contested votes in Florida. And one of the four counties at the center of the controversy was Palm Beach County. Voters were using paper ballots, where you indicate your choice by punching out holes with a metal stick. Palm Beach County's ballot, known as the butterfly ballot, had choices of candidates spread over two pages, with the holes to punch out in between them. But some found the layout confusing. Voters who wanted to cast their vote for George W. Bush had no problem. It was clear that the correct hole to punch was the very first one, right at the top. But there was some ambiguity about which was the right hole to punch to indicate a vote for Al Gore. Was it the second one down, right after Bush? Or was it the third one down? 
Gore was actually the third one down. The way the ballot was set up, some voters who believed they were voting for Al Gore actually cast a vote for Patrick Buchanan. Buchanan being the extremely conservative Reform Party candidate. And there was also a problem with the physical ballots themselves, namely the chads. When you punch a hole in something, the chad is the little piece of paper or cardboard or whatever it is that gets punched out. And in theory, it should be completely punched out. But sometimes it just doesn't happen. Sometimes the chads hang on. And in the case of the 2000 election, if the chad was still hanging on, the ballot counting machine couldn't always read the ballot. And for the people who would eventually count them by hand in the recount, the auditors had to interpret the intent of the voter, and these hanging chads became quite infamous as well because in retabulating the vote, you had to make assumptions about whether a hanging chad was a vote for a particular candidate or it was a mistake. That's Eric Heron. My name is Eric Heron, and I'm the Eberly Family Professor of Political Science at West Virginia University. And I focused my research on elections, electoral systems. And so because of this faulty ballot in Palm Beach County, my grandma Jeannie, a dyed-in-the-wool New Deal Democrat from the Jewish tenements of New York City, might have accidentally endorsed a third-party candidate who embraces all the things that she is against. And then when we were told, I was really embarrassed. We felt cheated. We felt guilty. I felt guilty that I voted for the wrong person. Her retirement community, Century Village, was actually called out by Salon.com and other news outlets as polling unusually high for Pat Buchanan. There's extensive research to show that the votes cast for Buchanan in Palm Beach County were extraordinarily high. They were anomalous in the region and in general. And the best explanation for the spike in support for Patrick Buchanan was the design of the ballot. Even Pat Buchanan himself admitted that his high numbers were probably due to an error. Now, the butterfly ballot was only one small piece of the debacle that was the 2000 election in Florida. A lot of absentee ballots were counted incorrectly. There was a manual recount that was started and then stopped. And later, it would come out that the state of Florida wrongfully denied the right to vote to at least 12,000 people, a disproportionate number of whom were people of color. All of this in an election where the margin of victory was fewer than 600 votes. There were a number of incidents in Florida in the 2000 elections that were politically charged and potentially motivated by partisan intent. But the design of the butterfly ballot is much more likely a case of malpractice than malice. It was a classic design fail. It's a poorly designed ballot. It is a ballot that does not take into account the way that a voter would look at the ballot and use the particular technology in place at the time, punch card technology, to cast their vote. The ballot is a designed object that is critically important for democracy. But in the United States, it's almost never designed by an actual design professional. And as such, our liberty is being infringed upon by the tyranny of bad design. One of the oldest recorded instances of a vote is from the ancient Greek play The Eumenides by Aeschylus. In the story, Orestes is on trial for the murder of his mother. Twelve jurors line up and take turns placing a stone in one urn to signify guilty or in another urn to signify not guilty. And this motif of the stone as a marker of a vote 
It's an image that's stuck. And the Greek word cephos, which means small stone or pebble, is the root of cephology, or the study of elections. And as Eric Heron tells it, himself a cephologist, the whole stone in the urn setup was not too different than how elections in the United States were originally conducted. So in the early U.S. elections, you will find voters casting a voice vote. They physically had to make their way to the polling place and announce their vote. And one of the things you do sacrifice is the privacy of your vote. Individuals know who you are voting for. And what that can engender is pressure on voters to support one candidate or another. And the polls were not calm places with orderly lines. You could be badgered and pressured into voting a certain way. Early elections in the United States often featured liquor and violence and fraud. Voters would have to push or shove or be physical to express their right to vote. In fact, an election could be so raucous that it served as an argument for some against women's suffrage. Elections were deemed as inappropriate for women to attend. Then, in the late 1800s, election supervisors realized that having people vote by speaking their choices aloud was a terrible idea. The lack of privacy could lead to coercion, and those who did vote their conscience had no way to verify that their vote was being recorded accurately. And this all led to the advent of the paper ballot, called a ticket. But unlike the ballots we have today, these were printed not by the government, but by political parties. Political parties would print their own ballots that voters would take with them to the polling place. Now, these could be printed in newspapers, they could be printed by the parties themselves and distributed and the voter would turn in that party ticket. The party tickets would generally only have the candidates from that party on them. So if, say, you wanted mostly Republicans, you go get a Republican party ticket, and then you cross out the candidates that you don't want, and then either write in or literally cut and paste pieces of paper with your candidates' names onto that ticket. And this is the origin of the term to cast a split ticket or a straight ticket. But this system also had problems. For one, parties could make tickets that looked like those of their opponents, but actually had their own candidates listed, duping voters into voting for the wrong party. Non-standard ballots also created other opportunities for shenanigans, like racketeering schemes, which facilitated a whole black market of buying and selling votes. And so the party ticket system wasn't creating fair elections either. So in the late 19th century, there is... Uh, an innovation that is imported from abroad. It's called the Australian ballot. And the Australian ballot is government-printed ballot that is distributed to voters who come to a polling place, and they cast their ballot in private. And this Australian ballot system was a game-changer. First of all, we started treating ballots more like currency. Administrators have to store them securely Uh, They have to store them safely. They have to maintain a clear chain of custody over them to maintain the integrity of the election process. They're often printed on special paper to undermine counterfeiting or efforts to commit fraud. And with the Australian ballot as a point of departure, polling places in the U.S. began to see new machines that interfaced with the official government-printed ballots. There were machines where you pull levers or use a metal rod to punch holes out of an optical scan ballot. Like we saw with the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County, Florida in the 2000 election. Today, there is tremendous variation in how each county conducts its elections. If you move across a county line, your polling place could use an entirely different balloting system. 
Because here's the really crazy thing about elections in the US. Unlike much of Western Europe, and Canada, and Australia, South Africa, India, and most other industrialized democracies, the U.S. runs its elections at a hyper-local level. Because the U.S. decentralizes this whole process, you have a patchwork of election procedures all across the country. And it can vary at the county level or even within some counties as to how ballots are counted and processed. We do this because that's what the Constitution tells us to do. It says that states shall conduct elections, and the states generally delegate elections down to municipal governments. Partly because voters have so many things to vote for that each municipal government requires its own ballot. We vote for so many public officials. Everything from president to drain commissioner can be on a ballot. Yeah, in Michigan. Uh, I, I grew up in Michigan. You can vote for county drain commissioner. And so, given that each county is responsible for running its own elections, every county is on their own. They could hire a designer to make the ballots. They could not hire a designer to make the ballots. It all depends on what each election's official wants to do. And that, more than malicious intent, may be how Grandma Jeannie and her ilk voted for the wrong guy in 2000. Exactly. Pat Buchanan is a religious fundamentalist kind of guy, not the sort of person that a bunch of Jewish grannies are going to be voting for. If you had tested out this ballot in a kind of pilot test or run what we call a usability test, even with just a few people, that this issue would have surfaced pretty quickly. That's Dana Chisnell. She's a user experience designer. And I do applied research about design in voting in elections. Dana, along with her colleague Whitney Quisenberry with the Center for Civic Design, have made it their mission to bring design theory and practice to elections. In election administration, usability testing doesn't get done. Pilot testing on these kinds of designs doesn't get done. So Dana co-authored a set of field guides to ensure voter intent. Design manuals for elections officials. And the very first one in the series was how to design usable ballots. So one of our recommendations is use lowercase letters, use mixed case. Mixed case print is just easier to read than all caps. This has actually been proven in studies. We also say avoid centered type. Centered type is for wedding invitations and wine labels. It really doesn't belong on a form, especially one like this. Other recommendations include using big enough type. In New York in 2012, I think, uh, they used six-point type on their on their ballots. It's not uncommon to find magnifying glasses in New York voting booths. The Center for Civic Design also recommends using one sans-serif font. If you look at some of these ballots, they're kind of a, they look like ransom notes. There are lots of different type families that are used. The whole thing is just basically screaming at you. And uh, we can calm all that down quite a bit by just going with one sans-serif Font. The suggestions in the guidebooks for how to design a good ballot are akin to designing a good anything. When designers get a hold of these things, they're like, this is design 101. Uh, but it, election officials don't know this. And election officials, unlike normal clients, often have to uphold legislation requiring them to use bad design. If you go look at election code in practically every state, thing... Uh, design of the ballot is legislated. What the typeface is, what size it should be, what the grid is. Uh, it's, it's like bad design is legislated. Oh, yeah. Almost, almost exclusively bad design. <laughs> 
So not only do election officials have to apply better design principles to their ballot making, they also need to change laws. But one thing that might solve ballots for good is standardizing them. It's actually a project which Dana, Chisnell, and the Center for Civic Design are also working on. They've developed a prototype called the Anywhere Ballot. It's a touchscreen system where you can resize text, adjust contrast, navigate easily, and verify that you voted for who you meant to vote for. And it's open source, so any elections official can use it. Though Dana is quick to admit that it probably won't eliminate all forms of unfairness. Oh, well, something always goes wrong. I just hope that it will not be a major design disaster. The election official's prayer is, may the margins be wide. May the margins be wide and the odds ever in your favor. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, Kurt Colstead, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to Whitney Quisenberry at the Center for Civic Design and Pat Mercedes-Miller. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from our past Kickstarter backers and our new sustaining donors whose ranks you can join at Radiotopia.fm. When we get small monthly donations from the listeners that we serve, we are free to do the best work possible and commit our lives to our shows. Join us in creating the perfect home for creative audio at Radiotopia.fm. Support is also provided by Hover, the best way to buy and manage domain names. Welcome back, Hover. I've missed you. Hover is my secret addiction because as a person with more ideas than time, I can get an idea for some cool project I want to do or a book I want to write, and I go to Hover.com and I claim the perfect domain and its future home on the web. It's the first step in making something really great. If you have an idea, go to Hover.com and make your next world-changing idea a reality by registering a domain name. And if you use the offer code BALLOT, I'll save you 10%. That's Hover.com. Support is also provided by NatureBox. NatureBox is so good, it will change the way you snack forever. Nothing will probably unseat the pineapple ring as the NatureBox champion, but we will keep trying because there are new snacks every month for us to choose from. They have a smart snack guarantee, so if there's anything that you don't like in your NatureBox, they will replace it in your next box so you can be adventurous. Fortune favors the bold flavor. Go online to naturebox.com slash 99pi to have your first box of beyond tasty hand-picked snacks sent directly to your doorstep. That's naturebox.com slash 99pi. And finally, we are supported by MailChimp. The whole campaign, we've been relying on MailChimp to communicate with the tens of thousands of people in our Radiotopia and PRX mailing lists. We update people on the campaign. We share new challenges. It's easy to use and customize for any project or business. You should try them out for yourself at mailchimp.com and send better email today. And before something distracts you and the horrible world outside rips you from the inner life that we created together inside of this podcast, consider donating at Radiotopia.fm and keep the most creative and daring shows in the world going for years to come. Now is the only time that I'm offering the special 99PI Challenge coin, and when I see that you have one, I'll know that you were there when we built the future of Radiotopia. Join us at Radiotopia.fm. Radio Tokyo.